Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. In today's episode, we bring you a breakout session from You Lead 2023. This session features two presenters, Deji Boade and Michael Carter, speaking about the ways the education system impacts multiple marginalized students. We also hear the reflections of the participants from the discussion that the presenters facilitated. If you like this session, join us at ULEAD 2024 in Banff. You can get more information by visiting the ULEAD website at ulead.ca. Uh, welcome. We are happy that you are here to join us um, where we're going to be examining the connection between race and disability in inclusive classrooms. Maybe I'll introduce myself um, briefly. My name is Adide Jibawade, and this is Michael Kata. We're still going to be doing like some introduction later on, uh, but we want you to know that this session is not going to be like the two of us just standing here talking the entire time. At some point, we will ask you to like form groups, move your chairs around, make yourself comfortable, because we want you to engage in conversations that we'll also want you to contribute to as well as part of the discussion. So we don't just, we're not the holders of and keepers of knowledge, right? We want everyone to um, participate in this, in this conversation. You can, you can tell that we're movers and shakers. We don't, we don't like this idea of like everyone sitting like we're about to join people together in some form of matrimony in front of the room. Thanks for reorganizing. I think it'll make the second half of our presentation even more uh, interactive and exciting. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that this place is on the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7, the Stony Nakoda, the Blackfoot Confederacy, and the Dene Sutina. It is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3, part of the Métis homeland. In recognition of the First Nations and Métis on whose land we sit, we celebrate the resilience of all Indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. We commit to continuing to educate ourselves about decolonization, and we support Indigenous peoples in their pursuit of self-determination, sovereignty, and justice. I also want everyone to think about the privilege of this space, of this hotel, and I'd add the inaccessibility of this space. Uh, it's, it's important to mark these things. Deji's going to tell us a bit about himself. So we have a few things there that kind of like points towards, you know, some things about myself and the things that I like. There's cooking there. I enjoy cooking and love food. Maybe I should start with my name. That would be nice, right? Okay. My name is Adedeji Adeyemi Ademilui Mayowa Akoni Joseph Omobabo Ade. And um, that would be the test at the end of this session. Um, but you can call me Deji. Um, I was born and raised in, in Nigeria. Uh, my journey here um, is quite long. I lived in, and studied in England before I moved to Canada. Um, so, yeah. I, I enjoy soccer, I enjoy cooking, and music as well. I actually have a music video. We can talk about that at the end of the session. Where are you from? Nigeria. Nigeria. Oh, where am I from? Where, where are you really from? I'm used to that. That's why I said Nigeria. 
Um, I am a learning support teacher in Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta. Um, shout out to the Lethbridge folks in the house. Um, yeah, so I've been doing, I've been teaching for 10 years now, um, mainly as a learning support teacher. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Carter. Um, I'm a disabled teacher from Lethbridge, Alberta. In November 2020, Deji and I began collaborating together on this topic. I've been aware of the ways that disability has been constructed apart from other identities, often as a way to bring focus to disability as a site of oppression. As a white man with a physical impairment, I found myself well-reflected in the discipline, and I recognized my privilege in this respect. I also recognized, however, that the way disability studies and disability activism fight for disabled people often excludes mar uh, multiply marginalized people. This work alongside Deji helps me understand the complexity of disability when we consider every disabled person, including racialized people. In addition to my work alongside disabled students and leading colleagues as a learning support teacher at Chinook High School in Lethbridge, I'm an improvising musician. I play saxophone. Um, I enjoy exploring cities and reading Canadian fiction. In our presentation today, um, we have two key questions that we're going to be talking about. Um, and the first one, we're going to explore how ableism and systemic racism impact mar multiply marginalized students. Here we'll look at, on the one hand, how schools have historically and contemporarily used disability as a mechanism to oppress racialized students. On the other hand, we'll recognize racialized disabled people's rich, valuable lived experience at the intersection of race and disability. And then Deji is going to uh, address our second question. Thank you, Mike. The second question is, how do we as educational leaders facilitate change in the classroom? I don't know if anyone was here yesterday when Jason Schilling did his presentation. It took me a, a long time to say something because this is something that I'm really passionate about, um, wanting to see like changes to the system of education in this, in this country and in our province. And um, I always find that Anytime we have the conversation, we always hit like a wall, and that wall is the government. And I always feel like once we hit that wall, then that's where the conversation stops. I hope that in this room as educators that we don't stop at a wall at any point in time um, during this session, that we can find ways in which we can facilitate uh, changes in our classrooms. <clears throat> and schools. So um, I want you to think today that during this presentation, when you hear like, you know, race, um, I want you to think, I know I'm black, I don't know if you can tell, but I want you to think about indigenous students. Because in, in terms of like this, this country, this province, when we're talking about race, I want you to think about indigenous students. Yes, think about black students as well, but more about indigenous students. So I'll move on to the next slide where we look at these terminologies, which I believe we're all familiar with. I'll just go over some of the um, definition. Uh, so race, uh, a social construction whereby groups of people are divided based on physical traits. Uh, systemic racism, uh, the systems in place that perpetuate racial injustice and oppression. Uh, racialization, 
recognizing the impact of race on someone or something, placing it in a racial context, and um, intersectionality, a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create unique modes of discrimination and privilege. I'm going to talk about some uh, definitions around disability. Many of you might know this, but it's a really important understanding. Disability most typically is understood as the physical or mental condition that limits a person's movements, senses, or activities. That's the one that's most widely accepted. Um, it leads to a understanding that disability should be fixed through medical intervention, and the problem in terms of disability lies in the person. Whereas the social model of disability which is actually quite old, it's from the 80s, but I've found as I talk to lots of different groups of people, it's not one that we're really that aware of. The social model of disability states that the external barriers, the environment, the organization, the communication, and the attitudes, those are what disables a disabled person. And the social model of disability then breaks disability from impairment, which takes the place of the medical model of disability. Impairment then is the limitation, physical or mental, and disability is the ways that society disables disabled people. When I first heard that, I think for me it was like in 2008, as a disabled person, it was a huge switch in understanding. And it was a huge way to understand my identity positively rather than as something I should be ashamed of or something that I should try to hide or work towards fixing. Um, so the social model of disability is so important, I think, for so many disabled people. Um, disabled person is the term preferred by many disabled people that recognizes the disabling effects of society on their participation. So most disabled people that recognize the social model of disability use identity-first language because disabled person recognizes that the world outside me limits my participation, so I can be proud to call myself a disabled person. It's not a negative. It's, it's not a bad word. Disabled person. Um, and I would encourage and I, I lead a disability studies class at my high school, I would encourage you to just engage with that terminology a bit, do a bit more reading, because I think it's important to value the terms that disabled people themselves use. Person with a disability is a term that most of us use when referring to disabled people. It's commonly thought as putting people first rather than seeing only one's impairment but that assumes a negative connotation of the word disability. If we, if we add it on because we wanna make sure people come first, that sort of positions disability as necessarily or probably a bad thing. It's generally not preferred by disability activists. And then ableism. Ableism is discrimination and prejudice against disabled people, rooted in understanding that disabled people, people are less able and thus less valuable. In our work together, we started by thinking about the ways that disability and race are similar. That's a good starting place. Um, 
because as disability studies grew as a discipline and disabled people were gaining momentum towards disability rights, thinking about disability like race was helpful. So disability as a site of, of oppression rather than as just a person's problem. So disability for a long time has used race as an, an analogy to, to build itself up as an identity. Um, and similarly, race is certainly disabling. So race has also used disability as an analogy. Um, and those similarities are definitely um, important to recognize, but they, as you'll find out later in our presentation, they do exclude people that, that live at the intersection of those two identities. The histories of disability and race have similarly located the problem to be solved with the individual person and their bodies. In the, in the case of racialized people, their families and their neighborhoods. Both disability and race share a history of misused science aimed at upholding ableism and racism. Disabled people's history includes our continuing systems of institutionalization and eugenics, that is forced sterilization of disabled people and other undesirables, which remained law in this province until 1972. Disabled students continue to be subjected to medically supported hierarchies that problematize their bodies and limit their potential in school and beyond. Similarly, during the 1870s and 80s, John A. MacDonald was instrumental in entrenching biological racism into the fabric of Canada through legislation that aimed to control and remove Chinese Canadians and Indigenous peoples. Additionally, racial segregation in schools remained law in Canada until the mid-20th century, impacting black students, especially in Ontario and Nova Scotia. As provincial laws in the mid-century began to legislate change that prohibited racial discrimination, other mechanisms of control were created to control equity-deserving people. I'll just quickly chat about how this you know, all came about because um, in our school division, we have um, district teacher-led PL that we do. And um, so Mike and I started this and I remember back then when this topic came to mind the first question that you know came to my mind back then was how come there are lots of indigenous students in KNE programming like this is not based on any research or anything but just like what this is very very common like why is this a thing you know and then we started digging and started like looking at different you know, different research. So this next slide that I'm going to share. So this is um, quite interesting because this is Canadian-based, although there are lots of um, data that are out of the United States, but the one that we're sharing here today is like from Canada. So you can see, you'll be able to see, and, and Mike will talk about this in a, in a little bit, but I'll just share some, um, some quotes here uh, by Parekh, Gillian Parekh, in one of the books, it's, it's on the back um, table there. Um, it says, schools cannot arbitrarily, English is my second language, schools cannot arbitrarily exclude students from programming on the basis of racial identity or class. However, schools are often allowed to employ medic medicalized measure of ability mired in racist and classist histories. So, 
um, another another thought that came to mind when we started, you know, looking at this was even some of the assessment that we use for all students now, where they made for all students. How does that determine what the result is going to look like? I, I even think about some of our immigrant students that we have to do assessments that were made for white kids for. What's that result going to look like? And how will that classify them? How will that classify the type of programming that they are going to be placed in? Um, I know you can't really read those numbers, but what's especially important to note is in the top right-hand corner, if you look at black students, in this particular survey, they represented 13.5% of the student body in the TDSB. And if you look at the exceptionalities, so in Ontario they talk about special education needs as exceptionalities, um, you'll notice that despite only being 13.5% of the population, in terms of behavior, they're over 35%. So they're represented at over 35% of students with behavior exceptionality, and similarly with language impairment, they represent 20, more than 24% of those students. And then if you look at white students, white students are only overrepresented in autism and in learning disabilities. And the point of her work is to quantitatively identify that we use these labels to reproduce social inequities. So white kids are labeled as autistic and learning disabled, but black kids are labeled as behaviorally challenged, uh, developmentally disabled, and language deficient. And her work is extensive, lots of good stuff. And I would encourage you, these other charts as well, talk about the programming that each that different racial groups um, represent in the TDSB, and you see similar things. In terms of special ed, black students are 30% of those, while only being 12.6% of the overall population. And then if you look at things like art schools, for instance, white students represent 73% of those students in those schools, whereas they're actually only 28% of the population in the TDSB. Startling. And it's important, important work that I'd encourage you to look at as well on your own. So uh, the reason why we've asked you to sit the way you're sitting right now is because we want to engage in you know, conversations that will lead to some changes that we want to see in, in our schools. So um, it's important to highlight this, you know, this data and this fact to show that this is, you know, this is a problem. And uh, we don't want to spend too much time on talking about the problem, but focus more on what's the way forward. How can we, how can we do this? I am very excited to, um, to have this opportunity to be surrounded by school leaders to think about what are ways that we can, you know, leave this room and go start to make some of this, you know, some of these changes that we want to see. We talked about the problem of, of uh, racialized people being identified as disabled, and that's a way that the education system continues to marginalize people of color. 
But the other side of this that we were interested in is it's important to actually recognize those students that live at the intersection of both race and disability. Because they often get missed when we constantly talk about how, how racialized students are disabled by our systems. Well, there's actually racialized disabled students, and they need a voice too. They need to see people too. Um, so we, uh, one of the best ways that I've found to help students who do live at the intersection of disability and race um, see themselves is through social media voices. So um, three that I'm particularly excited about are Imani Barberin. She's a really engaging um, black disabled person. Imani Barberin. I didn't... I don't think I put it on the slide. Lolo Spencer, who is also a black disabled woman, and she's similarly super activist and exciting. And Leroy Moore, who's a black poet and disabled. Um, in the disability studies class that I facilitate, several of the indigenous and black students have shared the importance of hearing from those voices, those voices of people who are black or indigenous and disabled. Uh, also important to note, most people don't know this, November is Indigenous Disability Awareness Month. Who knew? Yeah. Um, in Canada, many Indigenous people are also disabled people. Too often, this is due to continued racial discrimination in our healthcare system that leads to poor health outcomes for many Indigenous people. For others, Indigenous people, Indigenous disabled people exist and have the right to be seen and heard and be proud of their identity. Uh, the lived experience of disabled racialized people can be erased in discussions about how disability has been used to continue oppressing people of color. So it's important to also recognize the value of those living at that, of that, living at that intersection. I think it's interesting that we skipped the slide and then you talked about how these people are often missed. So <laughs> the irony, right? <laughs> okay, so... Um, what do we need to do? What do we want to see? Like, what are some of the changes that we want to see? At some point um, during this session, which is, we, we talked about like second half of this session, we will be talking about some themes, you know, that we'll be having conversations about. But I want us to start, you know, thinking about the current system, like how are disabled and racialized students able to access supports, you know? Um, if we think about during COVID, when everything went online, how was access? You know, what, what did that look like? I, I remember, like, <laughs> trying my very best as a learning support teacher to connect with, you know, to connect with students. Um, I always say that I was like a YouTuber because I wasn't getting anything on the other end, but I was just like, just saying everything and just remembering to tell them to like and subscribe at the end of every session because that was just, it was just, it was, it was interesting. But it was nice to see um, at that point that not everyone had, you know, not everyone had the access at the time. Um, you know, thinking about, I said earlier, you know, K&E enrollment, thinking about you know, equity-related skills built into everything that we do as a society. And thinking about the research as well, like what research do we need to do, you know, to continue to, um, to continue to help with this work as well. I think one of the most important things we need to think about as a group is how we can collectively challenge de deficit uh, perceptions of racialized 
disabled people to support them and also for us to build more critical activist dispositions. This is, instead of finding solutions that aim to fix the problem, because I, I, I would argue that's, that's what we've found in our, in our research, so many times we recognize a problem and we try to fix it. We fix it by maybe uh, a pullout situation or a, a special targeted intervention. But these are all time limited and they're always trying to fix the problem with some kind of additional band-aid. We have to challenge the, the very fabric of our systems of inclusion that tend to further marginalize disabled racialized students, as demonstrated by the research we've looked into. For me, I continually ask myself, how am I imagining and creating a better future for disabled people and for equity-deserving people more generally? So, uh, we're getting really close to the fun part. <laughs> so we're, we are all witnesses to this issue. We are. We're all witnesses to this issue. Collectively, we're responsible for creating change and for creating space for disabled racialized students. All of us, not just disabled and or racialized people, are responsible, and we all need to work together. Controversially, I'm going to say this. The time for well-intentioned bystanders who perpetuate in inequities is over. We need collective action, challenge, and disruption. Okay. I thought everyone was going to, like, stand up, clap, and cheer. <laughs> <laughs> during that like this disruption like just let's just rip the band-aid off and just yeah flip the table okay so um this next slide so our school um division in in february of this year they hosted um the first division-wide student forum and um so the division worked with each middle and high school um, to invite students to gather and talk about inclusion and wellness because we think student voice is really important. And um, the goal of the forum was for students to assist the division in becoming better informed and to help shape and guide um, our system to be responsive and accurate in meeting the needs of students. So the event was an opportunity to inspire and leverage student voice, uh, voices, like I said earlier, and listen to their interest and concern as well. We are going to be the change that um, society needs slash wants. So, yeah, so. What, what we're doing here is basically igniting that and providing a voice for students to make sure that they are heard and to make sure that they are seen. My name's Noor. Uh, I go to LCI and I'm in grade 11. We kind of talked to other students from other schools uh, from different grades and uh, we discussed a few questions about um, what's happening in our schools and how to improve and basically people's experiences with the schools. I hope that we can gain a better understanding of kind of what students have to go through and what they want to change and um, implement that throughout the schools and kind of um, use their voices and listen to them. And yeah, I hope it provides better insight. I'm Charlie, I'm from LCI, and I came to this meeting not knowing really what it was about, but we did some really cool activities and we kind of got to know who's in our groups and everyone I noticed really quickly came from different different places and everyone had, there was so much diversity in the building, which was really cool to see. And I think the big 
um, what they're looking to accomplish is to see everyone's point of view on things. Because teachers don't really get the full picture, but students are actively like in the schools and they know what's happening. And I feel like to get our point of view on how and what things we want to see change personally, I think that's going to be a really big step in like how it shapes our school community. And I'm really excited to see what happens. So we've met with our students and we've heard and listened to the feedback that they have generated regarding um, quick questions we had where we did a plicker activity and eight questions that really involved deeper conversation with our wellness teams facilitating. Um, so really what we want to do now is take the feedback and the information that we've gathered, some of it represented on this rendition that uh, local artist Eric Dick did from the event, and we want to be sharing that information, the interests, the concerns, the ideas, the, the really great, rich conversation that occurred, and, and using it to inform our staff, our students, our community, and our parents, so that decisions that we make moving forward really do involve our, our primary resource, um, which is our students. And so really, as we move forward now, we're going to be collating a plan with the planning committee that it, were involved in this process so that we can really be thoughtful about a yearly plan, um, year one, year two, year three. And then as well, what are the quick things that we can really look at and respond to and incorporate into what we do in our schools? But then long term, how do we get to some of the really rich ideas that our students provided, knowing that it does take some time to make them come to fruition? So a tremendous day and a lot of great information that was gleaned from our kids and students, and, and now we're just moving forward and, and wanting to make sure that our students know that those ideas were heard and that we are going to respond uh, in a very thoughtful way. So student voice is also really important when we consider um, the intersection of race and disability, and their voices need to be heard. The next section, we're going to get ourselves thinking and working together. When we're doing this work, I want us to think about inclusion. We toss around that word a lot, and I think the word inclusion on its own has lost a lot of its meaning. It doesn't mean much to, to, doesn't mean much to me, I can tell you. I don't know if it means, it does vary. Some people still hold that word very dear and have a very clear idea of what that means. But I see examples of so-called inclusion that, um, that make me really turn away from that word in a lot of ways. Um, I would encourage you to think about equity and justice when you're thinking about um, the questions we're going to pose to you. A lot of the work that's, that's moving forward in terms of the disability community and in terms of diversity and human rights is focused on justice, not so much inclusion, because I think we're starting to understand that inclusion is just a mechanism whereby the dominant culture gets to decide who to include and still leaves those people at the margin. So we need to work towards justice. Okay, so this is what we're gonna do. Um, we will be discussing these themes. So I would say for about maybe four or five minutes, uh, we're going to think about how you know, disadvantage and oppression impact multiply marginalized students across these areas. So we'll pick the first one, so programming. So think about your school. What does programming look like in your school? And think about, 
you know, disabled students and racialized students, you know, based on programming in your school. We'll talk for about four minutes and then maybe like a minute, we'll have someone from the group share some thoughts from your group. And remember to take a long view of this. What we know, what I think we know, is that so often when we create resources that are meant to create equitable situations for disabled or racialized students, what we're actually doing is reproducing inequity. So a situation where we decide to remove all the disabled kids from the class and give them really intense instruction, that, in my view, is perpetuating inequity. Similarly with racialized students, if we create mechanisms that label them and create different settings for them, that is reproducing inequity. Um, when you're talking about this in your group, please try to think through a lens of justice, not well-intentioned resource distribution. Okay, so yeah, you can dive right in. So let's, let's start with programming. I'll bring the mic around. We have lots of themes too. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good idea. So I don't know, I actually don't know how much time we have left, but do you, do you see any theme on there that you think that is really important that we touch on? Can we pick like top, because we have like seven there, can we pick top five? Okay, so we'll skip the two and just do the, the five. So maybe I'll start with this group. Do you have a representative? Nobody's touching their notes. Um, so in our group, we were talking a lot about uh, what, what we mean when we're talking about like the pinnacle of ability. Um, we're talking about a white colonial system um, curriculum that doesn't work for different uh, cultures and nations across um, Canada, especially First Nations. We have people fighting over limited resources to uh, attain success that only works in a dominant white system. Um, so when we talk about programs like high-cost special education, um, First Nations are um, fighting for resources that don't fit within a system that fits for their students. Um, and so instead of having inclusivity, in quotation marks, built into the schools, it's trying to fight for resources so that students can try to succeed in a system that doesn't work for them. So that's um, a summary of what we talked about. We talked about a lot more, but that's a, a brief note on that. Thank you. And over here... We didn't really do the assignment, but we... Um, <laughs> we when you talked about student voice, part of my portfolio with, with our division is around Savvy, which is a, a student advocacy, voices in youth, and that is really, um, really going strong in terms of our rural population, like we are, we're trying to identify, we've looked at our PORI data and looked at safe and welcoming schools and then really broke it down and trying to get student voice, taking it back to the schools. So that was just kind of our conversation. We're all part of the division, our, our school division, but we just kind of really understood the process and kind of where we're going. We talk about a three-year plan and we heard about the three-year plan, really getting that, that triage piece now and then being really intentional with, with all of this stuff moving forward. Like how do we be intentional with, the data and the student voice as part of our plan. So we did not um, talk about programming specifically. We just talked about the direction of our division right now. Thank you. And over here, I even turned away. <laughs> it was a social cue. 
Um, so we also missed the assignment. Uh, I missed the assignment. The rest of the group understood the assignment. And our conversation was uh, mostly focused on how there is a real squeeze in programming, both entering entering school at the elementary level. There's ages and stages questionnaire that takes place to measure student ability prior to entering school. There's perhaps an eye assessment that takes place in kindergarten once they're in school and all the way through you're streamed through middle school, you're streamed through high school, and then there are diploma examinations in order to earn a diploma at the end of high school. All the while, uh, we're thinking, okay, all that psychometric assessment that's also taking place in addition to that, whether it's a Wyatt or another entrance level B assessment prior to a level C assessment that may actually be required in order for a disabled person to access the social resources that they will need in order to feel included in society after school. So we didn't come up with any solutions. (laughs) Like, I, I think we need a really wholesale change, systemic change, in order to address really complex overlapping problems. So that is just a statement of facts, I think. Thank you. And over here? Um, I teach, and I'm the principal with the Puff Preschool Program. So what we do by nature is inclusive. And it really is looking at the strategies that we use in classrooms as universal strategies. So things like visuals, um, they work for kiddos that have, you know, more developmental delays. They work for children who have more English as a second language, children that have more behavioral challenges. So trying to use more of those universal strategies to support children rather than, you know, this child has autism, we're going to do this. Um, And then we talked a little bit about, you know, looking at using some of those strategies, like if you have a child that's a little bit older and say they're learning English, instead of using like a, you know, learning support person to teach them English when what they want is that belonging and that ability to make friends, how do we build on that so the child is excited about coming to school, has those connections, and then can learn some of the other things that we want to teach rather than jumping right to how do we work on, you know, teaching this child English, but they don't have the friends and the social connection that they may be looking for. And over here... So much like the other groups, we didn't totally get enough time to dive into all the uh, ins and outs of the programming, but we kind of just talked about each of our contexts, and then kind of I feel uh, started to shovel away at the question as to, yes, we know that we are all trying the things and doing the things when it comes to um, bringing everything we can into the classrooms with the students we're working with, but um, kind of coming away with that, thinking, are we each going in our own direction, whether it's is my school doing this one thing and that school doing that one thing? And are we, I thought your idea was wonderful, not wonderful and fortunate, but are we all just going in different directions and not headed in the same place with all the same intentions, but the way we're going about it in the same? Is that, and when you brought that up, it kind of makes me think of that idea of disruption, that we can disrupt things on our own. In my own classroom, I can shut the door and do what I want, but is it getting us all to the same place that we want to go and how do we do that kind of disruption together to make sure all the things we're doing were kind of 
stride and stride with each other. And I think that's kind of that question we started to peel away at. Um, and it's a good one when we look at programming and what it is. Are we doing it alone or are we actually going about it all together um, with the same intention in mind? For, forgive me, Michael. We're going to like that. That's that's what I was thinking. We're going to switch things around on the on the go here. So because we have five groups and we picked five, I would like to encourage each group to pick one and then you can have more time to talk about it. And then we can have someone share. Does that make sense? So, this group, what would you like to pick? Just pick one, and then we'll give you time to talk about it. Assessment? <laughs> Programming back there? Assessment? Instruction? Okay, so instruction, assessment, programming, staffing and, and representation, and then you have communication. Okay, so, there you go. You can talk about it. I guess... The ex I kind of went with an example that we're going to kind of use to talk about what we say with assessment and how inherently troubling assessment can be for everyone in, in all contexts. And the context I used is that I'm at the Francophone School Board in the province of Alberta, and there is not a single assessment provided to my students that hasn't started in the English language, and how it always starts from an English language that's then translated, and then now let's look at, okay, for our First Nations community, any assessment that's ever brought to them started from, again, an English central or colonized lens that's going to them and a black person of color. And then uh, so many of our examples that we're using in these assessments have no rhyme or reason to the reality of, the st of all the other students. And I threw down the words like a deck of cards, like how many of our students don't know what a deck of cards is and why is that something they need to be taught to be able to be assessed? And if we forgot to, like, I don't know. So that was kind of the example that we were kind of, well, not that was one of the examples to try and say all the assessments, whether it's for coding and trying to get a student identified, but all these tools we're using. And then we have talked a lot about like assessment get away from the summit of like growth and the growth over time that students, how do we modify and adapt and look at students from their lens and not from our lens on them. Okay, thanks. Communication. Um, we talked about uh, how to, in our communication, how we could maybe do a better job or focused intentionally on normalizing and normalizing language. Um, and like in the terms of what you were saying about assessment, even assessments information, and it's not necessarily always bad information, but it's going to give you strategies. It's not going to change the kid. And so what do we actually know about our students and what do we know about their families? And elementary tends to, uh, and this is my bias, has a little bit more information about that than junior or senior high. And the junior and senior high students are a little bit more closed off about what's happening in their worlds and there's expectation of independence. And when we were talking about our savvy group, again, we're, what's our representation? Like what's the representation of that group? It's a bunch of um, beautiful humans that are white, <laughs> you know, but again, what are you working with in our communities, right? So it's trying to just normalize it so that it is their normal and not so that their normal is the only one. I don't know if that makes sense, but... It does. Thank you. Staffing representation? We talked about not having what we believe to be high representation of different individuals on our staff. And in the hiring process, how maybe people doing the hiring have some limiting beliefs about what individuals can do on the job or what they have changes they have to make to their school buildings to make them more accessible. And then we talked about also 
as people hiring, um, not a lot of people are applying with different uh, disabilities or from um, specific racialized groups. And so then going downstream of how do you, you know, share with students about different career options or how do you, you know, bring these thoughts and jobs to their mind before they are streamed into a program where they cannot access them because they don't have the prerequisite skills beforehand. So those are some of our thoughts. Thank you. Instruction, yeah. Can I just first say I really like that answer when you were talking about going downstream because if students haven't seen themselves in a position, then how are they going to know that they should work toward that? So I think that's a really good point. Um, so we talked about a lot of things, but we did talk about instruction and talked about um, when we're adding something new or something that's needed and important, like Indigenous representation or whatever else, and it's taking time of you know from the curriculum that traditionally has had to have been taught and you're thinking I have to cover all these things it's the the group I guess or the higher ups or whatever uh, giving license to say yeah but this is more important so we're going to cut this part out maybe and so kind of re-looking at things that way um, we talked about um, getting beyond the four walls of a classroom possibly looking outdoors to do you know outdoor learning experiential learning um, exploratory learning all those types of things um, when you're building a new school, which doesn't happen all that often, but building with all of the learners in mind from the beginning instead of adding things on after in terms of instruction. Um, and we talked about making sure that our instruction reflects everybody and not just necessarily the students that are in front of you at that time, but making sure, so for example, our racialized students that not all of the books that are being taught are about or written by, you know, or through a white lens, that you have a diversity of representation, um, you know, but that's ongoing all the time, all year long, doesn't matter who's in your class, that it's important for everybody. Thank you. And lastly, programming. Okay, well, we had a really wholesome conversation about programming, but I'm not sure that we got to any answers at all. I think just lots of questions as people who make decisions about programs. Um, how do you know that you're doing what's best or right for uh, the children that are in your care? Um, who gets to make those decisions? Maybe some of those decisions around programming were made in the 90s, and there's board policy that still surrounds those institutions, and how do you change something like that or um, help a board to understand that maybe there's another way to look at those policies and that programming? Uh, we also, I think talked about inclusion and what is meaningful inclusion and how do you do it right if you're going to do it. Um, I think all of our schools in the group really believe in inclusive environments and having all types of people supported inside a school or inside a classroom as much as possible. But then just some questions about who decides what's meaningful. Do I, as the vice principal, decide if that child with a severe uh, language disability is meaningfully included right now? How does that child tell me if they feel included um, in that program or if it feels like the right place for them? Would they be better in a congregated setting with other people who are like-minded or like, like in the like position or would they not? And how do we get their voice to know, right, how they feel about those environments? Um, yeah, just lots of questions and not a lot of answers. I just wanted to add something we were talking about for staffing as well is that often students or disabled students and uh, racialized students are, school isn't necessarily uh, the place they're feeling the most belonging. There, there's lots of systems in place where they're excluded and, and they're just maybe kind of getting through it till they get through it. So to, to try to get them the, and then say, hey, want to go into education? Like we talked about a lot are like, no thanks, right? Like it's not a place from a young age that they're seeing themselves in because of the way it's set up. So even just changing that climate 
is really important. How to do that, different story, but yeah. We'll be back next year for more solutions. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. I hope we've sparked some conversation and some thinking around disability and race. Just disability, visibility, and visibility of racialized people is so important. It's so important. Um, I think in specific cases where we're thinking about programming, for instance, you always gotta think about who's, who's not in the room. And even if we are only making small inroads into meaningful programming, whatever that looks like. Visibility is so important for everybody in that room. I, me and, I, I live as a disabled person. Deji lives as a black man. This is not on the side of our desk or an additive idea. We live these bodies every day and we just hope that you will work alongside us to really make the change that we need to see. And we're open to conversation. Phone us, email us anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of the You Lead podcast. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. You can also visit our website at atacsl.ca to get more information on the work of the Council for School Leadership.